0: We are in our series Acts Reenacted. Have we got Acts 18 open? Good, we'll get into that in just a moment. Last week we were in Ephesus and uh, we looked at some different elements of faith expression in that. We saw secondhand faith, we saw uh, uh, different... things happening there that we talked about people who were living in anticipation but no uh, actual uh, revelation of Jesus. They knew the baptism of John but they didn't know the death and resurrection of Christ. They didn't know the Holy Spirit and uh, we also saw those sons of Sceva, the the sons of a Jewish priest who tried to cast out demons in the name of that Jesus that Paul preaches and that always ends in disaster because if it's someone else's preacher's when it's a ministry of all believers, a priesthood of all believers, where you are supposed to know Jesus, something's going astray. So, you know, I, we talked about some challenges there. Get the download and um, and cat. Before I get to. message, We're looking at. We're between. Uh, Athens, and before getting to Ephesus. And we're looking at the city of Corinth. And uh, I reckon right now Paul is in a pretty heavy place. As I consider the ministry of Paul and this whole second ministry journey, I reckon roundabout about now by the time he's rocking into, rolling into, into Corinth, I think he's in a very heavy headspace. He's been plowing and plowing and plowing and plowing away for the gospel. And I get the impression he's feeling like it's not as productive as he'd like it to be. You ever felt that way? I'm doing and doing and doing. I'm plowing, I'm plowing, I'm witnessing, I'm faithful, but it's not paying off yet. I reckon Paul is in that place around about now. You know... A number of spaces where the second missionary journey has actually had a few roadblocks. These guys did okay at the start. They revisited some of the places where they'd already been. And then they got up to Pisidian Antioch, and, uh, and after that, they started getting stopped by Jesus a fair bit. They tried to go west towards Ephesus, where the big metropolises were. But Jesus said no. They went north and tried to go to the eastern side, the Bithynia area, which was quite another strategic space. The Spirit says no, so they've got to turn left. They get to the water's edge. And they get to Troas and they finally get up there and the Spirit gives a green light and Paul gets a very clear vision. They, they, they cross the Aegean Sea. Again, they hit up Philippi. It's interesting to note that in Troas, Luke, who is writing this account, changes his tense from they to what? We. All right, there's a new wrinkle in the team activity now. Luke is now teaming up with them, traveling with them, seeing this for himself. Just a little minor thing there. We know in Philippi some great stuff happens. There's the, uh, there's the salvation of Lydia and uh, the start of the church in that, in, that actually took place in her home. They also get clobbered. They get locked up. Only to lead a prison guard to Jesus and his family. But they get a bit banged up and, uh, and they're in great pain. And they need to travel on, so I can imagine they're kind of walking quite gingerly around about now. You know, they've been beaten and lashed a bit and, you know, they've had their wounds treated. So their clothing would be quite awkwardly sitting right now. You ever try to put a t-shirt on and, you know, uh, you know trying to, you know, after sunburn or something like that? Imagine that, but really intense. Walking with a few limps and some sore limbs get to Thessalonica, and there they have a time of revival. They also get hunted down and have to get out of there quickly. Then they go further across to Berea. Now we know there were some noble people there, right? Some people who went and checked the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was so. But opposition comes, so they couldn't stick around as long as they could. It's about this point that Paul takes a nice long walk alone. He has to go alone for a while he leaves Silas and he leaves Timothy back behind up north there to take care of matters in the church so Paul is walking away from something with unfinished business behind him this guy's a high conscientious sort of character I don't think he liked that the lack of unfinished stuff leaving in someone else's hands hoping they're going to be faithful Paul always seems to be a team guy being alone was something he wasn't all that used to here. He always had companions, and this is going to be a new thing. Athens grieved him deeply, while he was he had a great chance of to speak into the cultural fabric of the empire that's setting. He was only seeing glimpses of the revival he knew could be if he had time and a team. So that's down in Athens there. I relate all this because me and Paul are probably similar personalities. He's a choleric with a little bit of sanguine in him. And that's me. That's someone who kind of likes to see results on paper, We're a little bit results-driven, not by nearly said purpose-driven, church world. There's a results-orientated nature about me, which... Keeps me driven but also can be a flaw too because I can look at results on paper rather than the quality of people and that's that's always a, 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 a problem we can get into but that's another thing. But we like progress. We like things moving forward. I can. Paul is a guy that likes things moving forward. We like to maximize our minutes. We don't like it when things are not as productive as they could be. But we also feel uneasy without good people around us. Paul's definitely like that. He's a fish out of water without a team. And I'm kind of the same. I've got to have people around me, otherwise I'm toast. I I can't handle it. When those elements are not there, it can get hard and you can't see longevity in that sort of setting. However, Paul is flying solo, coming up over the hill to walk into a metropolis called Corinth. And that's where we pick up the story today as we begin to read. Chapter 18, verse 1. Let's read the first 17 verses together. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Wow. The Corinth that Paul was visiting was actually a relatively new suburb in the scheme of things. Probably had the infrastructure that was probably about as solid as Melbourne's is right now. Its inhabitants were quite proud of that fact. It had a rich history of being an influential city We're talking centuries. But in 146 BC, the city was a leading player in in a revolt against Rome. So when they rose up, the Roman army came in, and the general of the time flattened the place, leveled it, and sold all its inhabitants off to slavery. And it stayed desolate for 100 years. Uninhabited, flattened, leveled for 100 years. And it was Julius Caesar in 46 BC who said, let's build the thing again. Let's build Corinth. And so they did. So the city is only about, actually, it is 94 years old as they knew it when Paul's in the town. Its infrastructure, its architecture would have all been relatively fresh by local standards. The population was over 200,000 people. It was a major port city. It was a rich location often known of as Little Rome. It was heavily cosmopolitan, heavily idolatrous, massively immoral. Aphrodite was the main god of choice there. And the temple was populated with a thousand sacred women whose job was to be of ill repute, children in the room. Melisertes, the god of sailors, was worshipped there as well. And many other shrines have been found there by archaeologists. Just those few small snippets of history might be helpful when you read the letters to the Corinthians. Uh, We are preaching that after Easter next year. And going through that those letters and uh, I'll have much more to share with you in that setting. But it's interesting that, that it's here that Paul gets a sense of something special at hand. To the point that he sets himself up for a longer stint. 18 months at this point is actually his longest time in one place. Ephesus was coming and there was more time to be sent there. But at this point, 18 months in one place was his longest time and actually quite a good time. In this last century, in a lot of regional churches, Baptist pastors don't stick around that long. So that's pretty cool. We also know something else though here. Paul was actually really intimidated when doing mission in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2 is evidence of this. It says this When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but in God's power. I came to you with fear and trembling. When I consider the environment, I actually have a few suspicions why he's in their headspace. And I think these will carry over into today's challenge. You see, it's relatively easy, friends, to preach the gospel in places where life is relatively simple. Where you don't have to deal with complex issues. Youth ministry can be relative, at one stage, was actually quite simple. A lot of regional towns have simple things to talk through. Times gone by were simpler. It can be relatively easy to speak the gospel in places where complexity is not so huge. It's relatively easy to preach in the synagogues, to preach in environments where people are interested in God. And where your message is simply helping people who have a religious experience make sense of all that and actually put faith to their works and actually go, all right, now I can follow Jesus the way I'm supposed to. Many of the locations in these missionary journeys have actually only really interacted with faith on that level. It's even relatively easy to preach the gospel as a mere philosophical idea. Like in Athens, where there were only actually 10,000 people in Athens at that time. And almost as many ideas about life and worship in God. Even if there is rejection at that level, you can kind of brush it off and look for the next opportunity. But then you've got Corinth and this is the intimidating one because here you've got all these other environments but what about what about the place where you pick up the tools and do life every day for an extended period of time? What about the place where... Life is bigger. Life is complex. Issues are wider. Morality is more subjective. And religion seems further and further behind the eight ball and behind the curve in terms of relevance to today's world. I believe... This is one of the things that made this part of the mission for Paul quite intimidating. I've got to stick around and do life for these people and interact at a much more complex and deep and relational level. It's a big, complex, immoral city, and Paul has a missional, incarnational faith to live out there. Jewish scriptures in one hand, tools in the other. In this setting, we're not talking about Paul the intellectual giant or the theological expert. We're now talking about Paul, the everyday Christian whose faith has to have power and validity in a more populated and complex world every day. Let's look at the setting. We read here, this is one of the chief commercial capitals of the region. Paul walks in, he sees opportunity, doesn't go door-to-door looking for religious outlets, instead he goes door-to-door via the job centre. Stops at Centrelink first to go through the job computer thing and actually makes use of it instead of cashing a cheque. immediately looks for work he had a trade and and even though he sat as a disciple under a rabbi he was always encouraged to make sure you had something under your belt you never knew when you were going to need it in this case we call it tent making leather work may be another way of describing it there was no congregation to pay him in Corinth and the way things were in that city being paid by them would come with complications I'll flesh it out soon enough. And it's not until the others join him with a gift from other places that he can go into full-time pastoral ministry. So it's, it's people are suggesting around about nine months, Paul actually has to work a job and his faith and his expression of faith is primarily on the tools and among co-workers and clients. His employers are Priscilla and Aquila. We read here that they had to leave Rome because they were expelled. It turns out the Roman Jews were simply not agreeing amongst themselves all that well in Rome. The documented reason in ancient writings is that they were instigated by a character named Crestus. This is actually seen by loads of scholars as a misunderstanding. And that Crestus is more likely to be a fellow named Christus. And that the Jews were in disagreement over the claims of Christ. We know that the church in Rome was as old as the Jerusalem church. We also know that this expulsion took place in AD 49. And Paul's time in Corinth was from 50 to 52. That's plenty of time for the Roman church to develop. Plenty of time for lines in the sand to be drawn amongst the Jewish community about where they stood with the claims of Jesus. We also know that this couple were very much Christian believers and they became close friends with Paul, standing as employers here or at least co-workers, but risking their lives with him later in Ephesus and even later regarded as apostles themselves. And we read here between work weeks, Paul uses his time off, in this case the Sabbath days, as another expression of his personal mission. You know you can find mission in your downtime, right? He's there every synagogue meeting reasoning with the Jews about the claims and identity of Jesus. That word reasoning tells us clearly that he did not take over the synagogue meetings. He didn't just walk into a group of worshippers, pick up the microphone and go, I got the monopoly on this thing, you will listen to me. I happen to know a man who ran into a church of another denomination who he believed were miles off kilter and he tried to actually do that on a Sunday morning. No. Man, he got hauled over the coals for that. We can safely assume that he did the opposite of that. He would sit in respect. He would sit in reverence. He would sit in worship. And where appropriate, he would speak where he was able to. The idea of persuading here shows that he was putting his heart and soul into, into these people believing what he did about Christ. What's our persuasive skills like? You see, there's persuasion and there's manipulation. Manipulation. We're not trying to twist people's arms or manipulate people or guilt people. We're actually trying to persuade. In other words, our infectious enthusiasm and faith and belief and confidence in Jesus is what we want other people to know. That's not manipulation. If it's real to us, it will be real to them, right? You can't just twist people's arms and kind of tick the box of, well, I just said my piece. No, no. We persuade people, what I feel, what I know, I so want you to as well. But like in every city, the time comes where the synagogue is not the place to be anymore. But next door becomes a new mission. Next door in this case is actually a turn of phrase. It's not literally that the synagogue is 33 North Terrace and next door Justice lives in 35. It's actually a phrase reflecting that there was a world right on the doorstep of where the people of the one true God were worshipping. And these people would now be the focus of Paul's attention. It's interesting that it's here that the intimidation kicks in again. Paul writes, I came to you in fear and trembling, and now fear and trembling again kicks in. How do I know that? Because verse 9 says the Lord appears in a vision telling him not to be afraid. If God has to show up and go, hey dude, don't be afraid, it's probably because the God who knows all hearts believes Paul's afraid. Makes sense to me. (laughs) It was about this time that opposition had a habit of coming about. In other locations, this was always the case. I reckon this was playing on Paul's mind a fair bit at this point. We know historically that the Corinthian church grew quite well and quickly. Some Jews came to faith, as our passage tells us now, but this was a very much Gentile-based church that was going on here. There was probably a bit of fear in Paul's mind about and some wonder about when the bubble just might burst here. When's it all going to rain down? When's the what, the thing going to cave in on me here? However, in this vision, God states otherwise. There was certainly opposition on the way, and it did take place. We just were about to read about it. But God shows up in the right time. Why? Because divine vision will trump human opposition any day of the week. If we can operate with a divine vision all the time, if we can see what God is doing, if we can see what God is at work doing and we have a clear sense of His leading, nothing will stop that. No human can stop that. They don't want to fight against God. That's a battle they cannot win. There are some great promises that are made to Paul in this intimidating context. Keep speaking. You're not alone and you won't be harmed. That had to be good news right here to someone who had coped a lot of that over the last few years. But also this, I have many in this city. Don't you love the consistency of God? How many other prophets have felt alone and yet that has come up? Think of Elijah. Here I am all alone, God, blah, 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 I've been zealous for the Lord. And God goes, Just go a bit down the road and have a look. There's a few thousand people who haven't bowed their knee to bow yet. You think you're alone? Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh, God's at work here. I have many in this city. In other words, your work is not going to be in vain. Many are going to be mine in all this. We read that was good enough for Paul, and he continues to minister effectively and faithfully. Then, something interesting that last slide I showed you, I uh, just play pl- with the, the passage Galio. Something interesting takes place here. And Luke is making here a very deliberate statement when he's describing the incidents around Galio Here, Galio's the proconsul, he's the governor. Of Corinth, and he reports to the Senate, the governor of Achaia, the state that surrounds that area. This indicates that Corinth is no longer seen as a volatile space. If he reports to the Senate rather than the the emperor himself, that shows good things. Gallio is also known as a politician who was known for his loyalty to the Roman Empire important note. He had a reputation for being incredibly clever. He was a charmer. He had great ability to win people over. Everyone loved him. But at this point, he's also quite new at his job in in this region. When this incident takes place, he's still kind of still finding his feet in the job. This is seen by some as the Jews testing the boundaries on what this new leader would do. But it's also worth noting that other city leaders in other parts of the empire were taking close note of what Gallio would do. I'm saying all that for a reason. Because Luke's description of this is massive in that context. We need to remember at this time that Acts is a historical research document addressed to someone who is believed to be a Roman official, Theophilus. It's what's known as an apologetic work. Because of the cost of paper, Theophilus probably commissioned some of Luke's writing here. And for the viewing scrutiny of a Roman official, Luke is able to document here that the respected governor Galileo, when given the opportunity to judge Christianity and declare it an enemy to Roman law and order, did not do so. Instead, he dismissed it out of hand and told them to sort it out amongst themselves. This was a key precedent. This had a ripple effect over other cities as Christianity advanced. This wielded greater influence. Okay, I've covered the passage. Now I've got to take some time to make this a modern thing. I've had to wrestle with this because I'm so enthusiastic about The idea of ministry in Corinth, and I'm going. God, how much should I expose? Should I speak about now? Here's what I've long believed, Church. Corinth, when we take into consideration the Western Church and the Western environment that we do mission every day of our life when we consider the morality, when we consider the progressiveness, when we consider the the commercialism, the consumerism, when we consider so many factors, Corinth and us are so kindred it's not funny. Corinth is us. It's our context of life, our context of ministry. Out of everything in the New Testament, I see Corinth being something that's probably the closest to us. Corinthian ministry is what we do week in, week out. There's three arenas of ministry going on here. The arena of the workplace, the arena of next door, and the arena of public and official opinion and judgment. In this passage today, all these areas of ministry are carried out by a person who feels intimidated, overwhelmed, and out of their depth and waiting for the bubble to burst. The message Paul has feels too simplistic for the crowd he's in. This was a world of flamboyant rhetoric and patronage. It was a world where morality was incredibly subjective. It was a place where position and power was heavily pursued. And then there is Paul. A message incredibly simple. I preached to you and I wanted to know nothing more than Christ crucified. Utter foolishness to those who are perishing. But then God's power backed him up. Just like he'll do with you in your workplace. We're not supposed to be the most eloquent person on the planet. But we can be walking in clear power. In my eloquence, I actually did harm in my workplace. When I got off topic and ignored Christ crucified, my workplace message got distorted. One of the ones I will never forget, and it haunts me even today, who remembers Port Arthur? In the weeks to follow, I'm a young Christian in my early 20s, and I'm sitting in a office in a steel factory. I'm one of the sales guys, I work the phones and I drive trucks and stuff like that, and I've got office manager, state manager, warehouse manager, sales staff, all these different people around me. And then there's me, the youngest guy in the room, the most naive guy in the room. And they're asking me about that guy, Martin Bryant, and about whether that guy could actually make heaven his home. If I believe so much in this whole Grace of God thing, can even a guy like that make it? Because I didn't bring Jesus into the argument and just said, yeah, that, guys like that can get there. Bit of passive universalism coming out. Because if we believe that nice people are just going to go to heaven without Jesus. Then if it's good for one, it's good for the other. Hitler, Martin Bryant, these guys, same outcome, right? We have to believe. If we believe one, we have to believe the other. I highlighted the grace of God that, yes, he can find forgiveness. And yes, he, I believe even, even God's grace is so powerful that even guys like him can find Jesus in the end. And it's true, right? But I ignored the key factor in that. Christ crucified and because I didn't highlight that and I didn't emphasize that and I didn't show that there is a means because I was so eloquent and trying to be so enthusiastic and eloquent, I'll never forget one of them eyeballed me and said, well, if heaven can be populated by people like him, I don't want a bar of it. Christ crucified we don't have to be this super hot shot expert in rhetoric. Christ crucified. That's what matters, right? The power of God will back us up. It's an intimidating environment and we feel out of our depth sometimes. Oh, but they're such a smart bunch of people, I really just want to relate to them and Christ crucified and the power of God to back you up. It's an intimidating place. It's an intimidating place when churches consider what next door looks like. And across this country, there are churches paralyzed when it comes to the concept of trying to reach out next door. We've got this worked out really great. But number 35 and beyond... Churches get really passionate about everywhere else except next door. Our church leaders are meeting to prayerfully consider initiatives for the year ahead. We're going to be actively looking for ways to engage next door. Let's not be paralyzed by that. Yes, it's an intimidating concept to do. But it's roundabout. about at that point where the vision of God showed up, and I pray that's the same for us too, next door can be reached when God gives a vision to do it. I hope you can actually seek out to Jesus for that. And if I were to be painfully honest with you, it's been really intimidating the last few years in the political arena to engage with politics, to engage with the greater public opinion of the church. It's been sickening that we've wasted so much time being more subject to the Royal Commission than the Great One. Because of a minority group who have messed it up in a big way. In addition to that, we've got the issue of same-sex marriage, the, the validity of chaplaincy, all these different things coming in where the government is putting the squeeze and scrutiny on the church. But it's up to us to carry ourselves well in that and not be intimidated by that, but actually grab hold of what the Spirit is doing and to listen to His leaning. In this passage, I see hope. You see, Rome was a volatile entity to engage with. And the church in the first century was viewed with suspicion. How many are aware of that? Words like incest, words like cannibalism, atheism. They were words used to describe the church of Jesus Christ. They were not quite like Judaism. And they were talking to, and they wouldn't worship Caesar, so atheism came into it. They wouldn't recognize the deity the emperor. Cannibalism because of this the the communion table they thought we ate drank blood and ate flesh we know the symbolism they didn't get it because they were on the outside looking in and because everybody's brother and sister when we got married that made things complicated I do believe it's time for the church to rise above the super suspicious elements. It's time for the church to not be intimidated anymore, but instead display the morality that we stand for, to display the power that we claim to have, and to push through the most intimidating elements of our mission, which are the closest things to home. Corinthian ministry is right outside the door, church, and we must not be intimidated. For what does the Lord say? I have many in this city. Let's get on. Let's consider how Corinthian ministry looks. Tool in one hand, Bible in the other. Let's get out there and do the ministry that we're called to do. Keep it simple. Keep it Christ crucified. And don't be intimidated for the Lord is with us. Let's close in prayer and we'll continue to worship.